Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It's official. When federal employees open their first paychecks in 2024, they'll see a bigger number. President Biden signed off last week on that 5.2 percent average pay raise for most civilian employees, the final step to make the salary increase official for the general schedule. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me for a recap. And this one is pretty big compared to recent years, isn't it, Drew? You could definitely say that, Tom. This is actually the largest pay raise for federal employees on the general schedule in 43 years. So if you think about that in practical terms, this is the biggest raise that any federal employee has seen in their entire government career, unless you're someone who's been working for 43 years. Uh, The last pay raise to beat this one was 9.1% back in 1980 during the Carter administration. So it's quite sizable. And it also follows after a 4.6% pay raise that federal employees got at the beginning of 2023. And I'll just one other point I'll note here, Tom, this is the third year in a row now that you see the same pay raise for both civilian and military employees. Right. Yes. So in some sense, this is a reflection of the inflation that the country's had for the past couple of years, why this was an acceptable size raise. That is part of the way that the administration measures the what the federal pay raise should be. They look at the Employment Cost Index, or ECI, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics to help figure out what that raise is going to be for federal employees. For example, if you even if you look back at that 9.1 percent raise in 1980, inflation rates were quite high at that time as well. So this is similar concept here where they're trying to match that those inflation levels that were pretty high uh, last year. And when something happens like this or Congress passes a bill, they like some of the external groups like to, as they put it, applaud and uh, virtually, of course, maybe they really applaud. But there has been some pretty good reaction among the organizations, the good government groups, and, of course, the federal employee unions. They're pretty happy about this. Right. And that's not a big surprise, Tom. I mean, you know, no one's going to complain about having more money or getting a pay raise. So I think, you know, a lot of unions and and federal organizations, as you said, are saying this is a great thing for federal employees. It's well-deserved. They also point to what they say is a wage gap between the federal and private sectors, That's currently actually at 27.5%, according to the Federal Salary Council. So there is kind of this welcoming of at least a bigger pay raise to try to at least get on the path to closing that gap and building more parity with the private sector there. And as we said, that 5.2% is an average, but then there is a variable in there that depends on where you are. Locality pay, tell us more about that. Right. So even though 5.2% is the number that everyone has been talking about, the actual raises for 2024 are going to range from about 4.9% up to 5.7%. And Tom, as you mentioned, that is based on federal employees' locations and where they're working. So for example, on the lower end of things, employees in Houston, Texas have one of the lower pay raises for 2024, whereas in Seattle, Washington, where you have much higher cost of living, they're going to get a bigger pay raise next year. So this isn't always a one for one. There can be kind of some variations within that year to year. So last year, Houston was not the lowest locality pay area. But all of that really depends uh, based on the year, based on employment cost index levels, 
and it's it changes year to year a little bit. Right, and if you want to get a more substantial boost, you have to move up a grade even within your classification on the GS. Right, so those those wages are pretty much set by the Office of Personnel Management, the different grades and steps based on each locality pay area. And then within that, your manager or whoever could move you up a step if they were going to give you a bigger salary amount for the following year. And speaking of locality pay, that's one of those things that somehow spreads a little bit more every year. I'm waiting for the point at which there's more locality pay than average areas in the United States. As uh, there are four new locality pay areas coming, tell us about those, where they are, and what kind of uh, increase is going to happen there. Yep, there are four new ones. There's Fresno, California, Reno, Nevada, Rochester, New York, and Spokane, Washington. And they're all going to get just about the average, slightly above that 5.2%. So, for example, in Fresno, they're getting a 5.28% pay raise for 2024. And then the highest of those four is the Rochester, New York locality. They're getting just about 5.5% pay raise. So the idea there that when those pay localities or the new localities are established, it's due to uh, just a noticeable or a bigger federal private sector wage gap in those areas. And it has to go through a whole series of steps to get approved and finalized through OPM. Uh, But those four have been in the works for at least, I believe, the last two years I've been looking at establishing those pay rates. Right. Yes, it does take some research and there has to be some incontrovertible evidence that it really does cost more to live there. It's not just a hunch that people have. Right. And the Federal Salary Council, the president's pay agent, these councils, they, you know, look at and research the areas very uh, carefully and over a long period of time to see if that gap, that wage gap that they're looking at is sustainable and if it continues over a long period of time, or maybe it was just one year where it was more noticeable than others. So it takes a while for those things to to come into effect. And the pay raise occurs even if there is a continuing resolution that the government is funded under, correct? That's correct. There wasn't any mention of the pay raise in any of the appropriations legislation. So President Biden's signing of the executive order just last week is basically going to make this official no matter what. Right. Even if there's a shutdown, which people are talking about, People, a lot of people will not get paid during that shutdown, but they will get their back pay when it's over, which will reflect their wages as of January 1st, 2024. That's right. And Tom, I guess one other point that I should mention here is that technically the pay raise uh, goes into effect in the first full pay period of the new year. So for most federal employees in 2024, that's not going to start until January 14th. And then they're not going to get paid for that until about two weeks after. So we're really seeing maybe a three or four week wait period before the pay raise actually takes effect on those paychecks. So that's something to keep in mind as well. It's not happening right on January 1st. But of course, you make it up on the other end because it rolls into whenever the pay increase, if there is one for 2025, would come in. So you would still get 12 months of that amount of salary. That's right. You would get a full year of of pay of that uh, pay raise, Tom, still, even if it's you still have to wait maybe a couple of extra weeks on the front end here. And let's face it, 5 percent is nice, but it's not going to it's not a lifestyle changing type of raise. It is a sizable increase. But if you think about the context here, inflation rates last year were, I believe, 9 percent, maybe even a little bit higher at certain months. You also have health premium costs going up by 7.7% next year. So there's a lot of variables to weigh on you know, how much effect this is really going to have. But if you look just at the pay raise number, it is a 
a pretty historic race. Yes. I was just making the point that you're not going to do well like, say, the CEO of a company that makes bad cars or bad coffee. <laughs> I, su- I suppose not. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, as always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And you can check out all of her coverage of the pay increase at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I... I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, Uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.